morning. Be back in the first chapter of John. First chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, tried real hard to finish this chapter last week, and we just didn't quite get there. Uh, we like two or three verses finishing it up. We'll be finishing that up and uh, getting into John chapter two. Hopefully, that's my intent. Anyway, uh, but last week uh, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we uh, covered quite quite a bit of material and uh, got to Nathaniel and Philip's calling, and we talked a little bit about that, and uh, talked a little bit about uh, how the, the it's a very good possibility because. Nathaniel's not really brought up in the Synoptic Gospels, and Bartholomew's not brought up in the Gospel of John, how those two are one and the same. It's called by different names in different Gospels, which is very, uh, uh, which is uh, was commonplace uh, in, the, in the Bible. That, that happens quite a bit. But uh, we, we kind of blew through the last little section there because I was trying real hard to finish it up. But uh, I kind of skipped uh, verse 45, I guess. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And verse 46, And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. There's a lot of people make a, make a big deal over uh, this the saying here, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And, uh, and it, it was quite a statement, uh, but as I explained last week, though, in the verses before this, the verses preceding this, uh, we see that the, the scribes and the priests had a hard time recognizing the Messiah. They had sent, they had sent representatives of their little sect to John the Baptist, to ask John the Baptist who he was. And of course, John the Baptist, being the forerunner of Christ, said, uh, told him, he said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the light, I'm, I'm come to bear witness of the light. Uh, I'm come to announce the coming of the Messiah. Uh, but the, the religious uh, people who felt like they were goody-two-shoes, we would call them nowadays, they had a hard time recognizing this. But these fishermen that Jesus simply walked up to and said, follow me. Simple words, follow me. They're the ones that recognized him as Messiah. So why in verse 46 it says, And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? People will say, well, Nazareth was a, it was a ghost town. It was a cesspool. It was a horrible place. And all these things may be so. But. These fishermen were pretty well versed in the scriptures as well. I explained last week that, that Jewish life revolved around the synagogue. Not even so much the temple as it did the synagogue. And they would gather at the synagogue. And this is where the scriptures were read, the Old Testament scriptures. They were read and they were debated and they were taught. Uh, but they would have been well versed in the scriptures. So me personally, in verse 46, I think Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
uh, not because Nazareth was such a horrible place, but because Nathaniel knew that there was nothing that was predicted in the Old Testament that was supposed to come out of Nazareth. He would have been familiar with Micah chapter 5, which we read come Christmas time every year, where God says that the Messiah would be born in, uh, in Bethlehem. Actually, in Micah 5, it's Bethlehem Ephrata. Uh, but nevertheless, it's the town of Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus was born. Now, here, uh, here comes this disciple to Nathaniel saying, come see, come see the Messiah. He's here. And uh, he said, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, we know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Everybody in here knows that. And if you don't, then you should. But I'm pretty sure everybody in here knows that. But what, what made him a, a Nazarene or a Nazarite? What, what made him uh, uh, be from Nazareth instead of Bethlehem? Well, if you recall, there was, a, there was a, a, a decree made that all the children two years and older should be killed. And uh, there was a vision that come to Joseph, Mary, Mary's, uh, uh, Mary's husband, that said, take your family down into Egypt. And they went down to Egypt. And when they came back up, they settled in Galilee. Bethlehem was not part of Galilee, but, but Nazareth was. And this is where they settled. Uh, he was born in Bethlehem, yes, just as the scriptures predicted. But they settled in Nazareth. So this is why uh, Nathaniel, in my opinion, would have said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Not just because it was a horrible place, uh, like I've heard so many teachers and preachers say. Like I said, maybe it was. Uh, you know, if you look back through history, you look back through Christian and Jewish history, uh, it was kind of a run-down run -down town. And uh, it had a bad reputation, yes, but I don't think that's what Nathaniel was getting at. I think he would have known what the scripture said. And that's why he would have said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? So all that being said, I want to go back and hit that because I didn't feel like I'd done it quite in depth enough last week. Uh, we'll just keep on reading from verse 46, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now I spoke about this last week very briefly, about uh, when Jesus says, when I, saw, when I saw you under the fig tree, uh, and uh, talked about how this was a Jewish term for I saw you studying the scriptures. If someone was under the fig tree, it means that they were studying the scriptures. Was Nathaniel literally under a physical fig tree when Jesus saw him? He very well could have been. But this was, this was a, a Jewish terminology that was used to mean you were studying the scriptures if you were under uh, uh, the fig tree. But when, when Nathaniel first comes to Christ, though, in the, in the verses preceding this, he, said, he says, An Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. The Greek word there used is dolos, for guile, or deceit, or deception, or lying. And uh, he says, there, there is nothing like that in you. You are an honest man, is what Jesus was saying uh, to Nathaniel. Uh, and and we've got to keep that in mind as we read through these last few verses to wrap up chapter 1. Nathaniel answered him, verse 49, Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. 
Now, it didn't take a whole lot more than Jesus saying, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you when you were studying. And you, there is no guile in you. You're an honest person. You're an honest man. And you're an Israelite indeed. That's all it took for Nathaniel to say, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. He gives, him, he gives Jesus Christ two titles here, the Son of God and the King of Israel, recognizing him as being prophesied in the Old Testament because Messiah was to be both of those things and so much more, but both of those specific things from the Old Testament scripture, which confirms to me that when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, that Nathaniel was studying the scriptures like he did uh, with much of his time. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And I have and I've heard lessons, and I've heard sermons, and teachings and all kinds of things of what these greater things are going to be that Nathaniel will see. It's almost as ridiculous as people, uh, Brother Vern brought up, uh, I believe in Wednesday night service, uh, about how people will preach and teach about what Jesus wrote in the sand when the woman that was caught in adultery was brought to him. Nobody knows what he wrote in the sand. Nobody knows what he got down there and scribbled in the dirt. He could have wrote the Hebrew alphabet for all we know or the Aramaic alphabet. It doesn't matter. Christ said, greater things than these you will see. And he goes on to explain what those greater things might be. So there's no reason to debate and there's no reason to speculate on what those greater things are because the last verse of chapter 1 of John tells us, and he saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Amen. Now again, he was speaking to Nathaniel, and he had already uh, 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 recognized Nathaniel's study of the scripture. So Nathaniel would have understood this. And he says, hereafter ye shall see heaven open. He says, he said unto him, but then it goes on to say, ye shall see heaven open. He's speaking unto Nathaniel, and, and therefore to the whole group. Everyone that was round about could hear him says, ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Nathaniel would have recognized this. If he studied the scriptures like Christ says that he done, he would have understood this. We all know the story of Jacob's ladder from the book of, uh, from the book of Genesis and how Jacob, uh, when he slept that night, and he had the dream, and we saw the, or he saw the ladder from heaven, and the angels of God descending and ascending upon that ladder. Well, he's saying you're going to see these things descending and ascending upon me, meaning I am going to be the way. I'm going to be the communication between you and God, not the, not these angels like Jacob had. But remember what he said to Nathaniel. He said, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. But he's using an example of Jacob here. What was Jacob? Jacob was a liar. His very name means conniver. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He had deceived his father. He had deceived his brother. And yet, God gave him this vision. And when and, and when. Uh, Jacob woke up from that dream. He said, surely God is in this place. 
and he gave reverence to God. He built basically an altar to God, and he poured out his oil upon that altar. He was giving it all to God at that point in his life. Jacob was. And I believe Jesus was saying to Nathaniel here, if God will do that to this lying, conniving, deceiving Jacob, imagine what he will do for an Israelite in whom is no guile, in whom is none of those things. I'm not saying Nathaniel was without sin. I'm not saying that uh, in the least. The Bible tells us all that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes Nathaniel. Certainly it included Jacob. Certainly includes me, and it certainly includes you. All means all in that scripture. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I believe what Jesus was saying, if he would do that for someone as wicked and deceiving as Jacob, and he had just reverenced Nathaniel, as, uh, as an Israelite, in whom is no God, imagine what he can do for you, Nathaniel. Imagine what I can do for you. And he says, you'll see, uh, he says, you'll see the angels, angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Nathaniel had given Christ two titles uh, before this, the Son of God and the King of Israel. Christ gives, his, uh, gives himself a title here, the Son of Man, which you find in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, relating himself to mankind. Yes, Christ was all God. And yes, Christ was all man. But Christ would, uh, needed to be related or had to be related to mankind uh, uh, for his own purposes and, and for his own glory and for the very purpose of coming here and suffering and bleeding and dying for your sins and for my sins. He had to be related to mankind. So we can refer to him as the Son of Man. We can refer to him as the Son of God. It's all the same Christ in those titles, those different positions that Christ took throughout his ministry there. So that brings us to the end of chapter 1. Let's get real quick into chapter 2. And the third day, I want you to know something. This word and that chapter 2 begins with is very important, possibly the very uh, the most important word that we find in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Why? Why the word and? Because it relates back to everything that we've read, <coughs> read and talked about this morning and last week. And possibly some the week before. I can't remember where I picked up last week from. But really beginning at verse 19 in chapter 1, on through the end of chapter 1, is the and that this is referring to. So it says, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So we have and reverting us back to at least verse 19 in chapter 1. It says, the third day, what is the number three in biblical numerology? Now, I don't concentrate a whole lot on biblical numerology. You can get into some weird stuff uh, when you're studying numerology. But three does have two very significant uh, meanings uh, consistently through the scripture. One, it's the number of Trinity. It's the number of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But even more so than that, it's the number of resurrection. Was not the earth, you know, did not the earth come up out of its watery grave on the third day during the creation? Is that not when God brought the earth up and put the vegetation on the earth? It's the number of, uh, of resurrection. Did not Jesus arise on the third day? Yes, he did. So we have, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
and both Jesus was called in his disciples to the marriage, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And I have heard preachers talk about this line where Jesus says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Say that Jesus was berating his mother. He was downing his mother, talking bad about his mother, and all kinds of things. Folks, I don't read nothing about that when you come across it in John chapter 19 where he says, Woman, behold thy son. People make a huge deal over this word woman here, saying that Jesus was being disrespectful to his mother, and he wasn't. This was actually a very endearing term uh, to use. It was an all-inclusive uh, term uh, back in these days. But once again, in John 19, when Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he referred to his mother as woman then too. And you don't hear anything about that from the crowd that says that he was, he was belittling his mother by calling her woman. Now, he was rebuking his mother. I, I'm not going to deny that one bit. In John chapter 2 here, it says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? In the original Greek, this simply says, Woman, what me with thee? He says, Mine hour is not yet come. He is rebuking his mother. Why? His mother stepped in in her parental role, trying to trying to basically boss her son around, if you would like to say it like that, trying to direct him. But folks, this was the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the only person who could, who could direct God the Son was God the Father in his ministry. His mother had no say-so in what happened. So yes, Jesus was putting her in her place saying that you cannot direct this. This is, this is up to me. But he says, mine hour has not yet come. This is the first of seven times throughout the Gospel of John that you read about the hour of Jesus Christ. And we all know what that hour was. When his hour came, when his hour came, that was the crucifixion. That's when they came and arrested him in the garden. That's when they brought him before Pilate. And, and, they, and they, they brought him before a very illegal trial, or to a very illegal trial. And they beat him, and they scoffed at him, they made fun of him, and they, uh, and they ultimately crucified him. That's the hour that we're talking about here. We're not talking about the beginning of the ministry when he said, my hour has not yet come. We're talking about the hour when Christ would be crucified. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And I said this is the first of seven times throughout the Gospel of John that that's brought up. It says, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, if Jesus had truly been belittling his mother, Mothers, all you in here who are mothers, if you thought, thought that your child was belittling you, how would you react to it? Not very favorably, would you? I, as a father, don't act very favor, favorably if I feel like my boys are belittling me. Now, we'll jokingly and uh, humorously make fun of each other, yes. But if I feel like they're seriously berating me for some reason, then yes, uh, I'll address that as a father toward my children. What did Mary do here? She said, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She understood what Jesus was saying, and she understood why Jesus was saying what she was, or what, what he was. Jesus, yes, he put her in her place. He had to put her in her place. 
Otherwise, she might have tried to run his entire ministry uh, while he was here on this earth. And she understood that. So she said to the servants, whatsoever he saith, do it. Anything that he says, don't listen to me, in other words. Don't, don't listen to me as his mother. You listen to him, and whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were uh, set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. This is very significant, and if you ain't careful, you'll just read over it and continue on to the next verse. There were six water pots of stone. Once again, in biblical numerology, six. What's the number six? It's the number of something. Revelation tells us what that number is. The number of man. Number six is the number of man. Folks, once again, this entire chapter it started out with the word and. And it goes back to verse 19 in, in chapter 1, talking about the failure of Judaism, talking about the failure of the Jews, talking about how Judaism and the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture, everything about Judaism had become an empty whole as I said last week that's exactly what it was there was nothing in it God was not in it worship was not in it they were just depending on on the ordinances that God had put forth to keep them in relationship with God they were depending on on the ceremonies that God had put forth to keep them in relationship with God and not depending on God himself this is why it was so empty they were depending upon themselves and what they were doing, what the Jews were doing. Yes, we're going to the temple. Yes, we're doing our sacrifices. Yes, we're taking the sin offering. We're taking the burnt offering. We're uh, taking the, the grain or the meat offering. And we're burning incense as we're supposed to. And we're doing all these things. And we're doing all these chants. And it was nothing more than empty religion. And folks, there are church houses that are full of empty religion nowadays. We cannot let ourselves get into that. That's right. It is about a relationship with God. Amen. And that is, that is all it's about. It's about a relationship with God. And the only way we can have that relationship with the Almighty is through God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that this will happen. We have here six water pots of stone, six being the number of man. And they were stone, they were cold, and they were empty of anything. Just like the Jewish religion was. Listen, I ain't down in Jews. I ain't down in Jews one bit. The Messiah was a Jew. And, and he was prophesied and promised to come from the, from the Jewish race. And he did. I'm not down in Jews. I'm not, not down in Judaism. But that is exactly what it had become was empty. There was nothing in it. And these water pots signified that. There were six of them. And they were made of stone. They weren't made of silver. They weren't made of gold. They were made of stone. And it says there were six water pots of stone at the manner of purifying of the Jews. They weren't even used for anything significant. They were used in Jewish ceremony in the manner of purifying the Jews. It wasn't even, they weren't even there uh, uh, to, to give a fresh drink of water. It was for a ceremonial cleansing that they were using. And folks, ceremonial cleansings are useless uh, nowadays in our time. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, we can ceremonially clean, cleanse ourselves uh, till the cows come home, as we would say. And it will do us no good if we're not cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ first. These water pots were used for something that they weren't supposed to be used for to begin with. 
just like the Jewish religion was. Containing two or three perkins apiece, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He, said, uh, he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Back, back up uh, a few verses. It says, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Water is uh, symbolic of two different things in the scripture. Sometimes it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's symbolic of the Word of God. Me personally, in this, uh, in this instance here, I think it's uh, symbolic of the Word of God. He's in, they're filling empty vessels. But pay attention, though. It's the servants that are doing the filling. All Jesus is doing is telling the servants what to do. And folks, it is like that in the New Testament church age that we are in right now. Jesus doesn't rely on his servants. Jesus relies on no one or nothing. But he expects us to do things. Things that this scripture commands us to do. And what are we to do? We are to go forth to the world and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to fill these empty vessels with the word of God. Fill them up to the brim, whether they want it or not. Fill them up to the brim with the word of God. And then let Jesus do the work. Jesus didn't have to touch these water pots. Jesus didn't have to make some magical incantation. Jesus simply willed the water into wine. And the water became wine. When we as servants of God and as servants of Jesus Christ fill these empty stone vessels, these cold stone vessels with the word of God, then the Holy Spirit can do his work. Jesus Christ can do his work. And that's the only time it can happen is if the word of God is put forth. If we tell people, you're bad and you're on your way to hell. We're probably not telling them anything they don't already know. If we tell people, you don't stop your, in, or your, your wicked ways, then you're going to wind up uh, in the devil's place, is what I heard a lot coming up when I was growing up, in the devil's place. <laughs> Folks, it ain't a matter of stopping your sin. It's a matter of repenting and believing the gospel. We can stop sin. We can stop sin in our lives. Not completely. None of us are capable of doing that. But the adulterer can quit uh, committing adultery. The drunkard can quit drinking. The pill popper can quit popping the pills. We can stop all kinds of sin. And I've used the example before. You read in Mark chapter 5 where there was a wild man that come out of the tombs and he, had, and he was able to break his own chains. He was able to break his own fetters. But that did not make him any better. He still needed a touch from Jesus Christ to make him completely better. We can stop our own sin. We can. With enough willpower, we can. Not completely. As I said, we'll, we'll sin till the very day we die. Our very flesh is sin. But we can stop these, what we would classify as big sins, with enough willpower. 
Anyway, Jesus said, uh, Jesus told the servants to fill the pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said, draw out now and bear it to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Nowhere here does it say that the water was magically turned into wine. Nowhere here does it even say that the water was turned into wine. It just simply says that Jesus said, now bear, bear this water that you've filled in these water pots up to the brim, bear that to the governor of the feast, and the servant's simply done it. Folks, we have no right to question exactly how the word of God works. All I can tell you from personal experience is that it does indeed work. The word of God is powerful. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water, it was made wine, who knows which it was, but the servants, uh, which drew the water new, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And to me, every time I read this verse, and every time I think about this verse, I think about the world, I think about Satan, and I think about evil, and I think about how sin works in your life. It looks real good at the beginning, and the good stuff is set before the bad stuff comes in. That's exactly what I think of when I read this verse. Now, it may not be the, the biblical application of it, but that's what I think of when I read this verse. Uh, but the governor says, uh, uh, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when, when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. So, in other words, they're setting forth the good stuff, and, and listen, folks, Wine in the Bible is a symbolic of joy. Is, uh, that, that's all, all it is is symbolic of joy. It, it, it brings joy, it brings cheer to men's hearts, and according to the book of Psalms, to God's heart. Now, you can take that as you want to. I ain't saying that God's a drunkard by any means. And I ain't saying that God's ever been drunk. I don't think he has. I'm just telling you what the scripture says and what the script and, and what wine symbolizes within the scriptures and it symbolizes joy. This water, as I said, symbolizes the word of God. What does the word of God bring to someone's life who has repented and believed the gospel? It brings joy. But the servants only did what Jesus said. They filled the water pots. They served it to the governor. And then the joy came. The joy came by Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that joy will come. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This miracle, this is the first miracle as far as scripture goes, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. And he performed it in Cana of Galilee. But it says it manifested forth his glory. And as I just said, filling those water pots with the water, the servants doing that, and the water being turned to wine and being served to the people of the feast. And that water being, being turned, uh, uh, made into joy for them or, or cheer for them, however you'd rather phrase that. That was a manifestation of the glory of God. And it is no different in the life of a sinner that has come to repentance and belief in the gospel. But it takes Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ to do it. Yes, we, his servants, go out and we put the word forth. We put the gospel forth. Uh, we do that not because God needs us to, but because God expects us to. God commands us to do so. He says, go into, uh, go into uh, all the earth and preach the gospel to every living creature. It is our job to do that. 
Not because God needs us to do anything for him. He is completely and utterly self-sufficient. He needs us to do nothing, but he expects us to do it. But this miracle manifested the, uh, his glory. Whose glory? Christ's glory. The glory of Christ. It manifested this. Just as salvation, uh, salvation is performed in the life of a lost sinner. It ain't done because you're a good guy or a good girl or a good woman or man. It ain't done because you deserve it. It ain't done because God felt sorry for you. God saved sinners for his own glory. Amen. That is why he saved sinners. So that brings us to the end of the first section of John chapter 2 and the end of John chapter 1. Anybody got any questions or comments on any of 